Welcome to the In The Clouds podcast. In The Clouds is a marketing cloud podcast powered by Lev, the most influential marketing-focused Salesforce consultancy in the world. Lev is customer experience obsessed, and podcast hosts Bobby Tishy and Cole Fisher have partnered with some of the world's most well-known brands to help them master meaningful one-on-one connections with their customers. In this podcast, they'll combine strategy and deep technical expertise to share best practices, how-tos, and real-life use cases and solutions for the world's top brands using Salesforce products today. Welcome to In The Clouds Podcast. This is Bobby Tishy along with Cole Fisher. And today, we're jumping back into In The Cognitive Clouds. You may remember from a few episodes back, we covered law of least effort and paradox of choice and how those two elements can affect a marketer and how you can use those concepts to become a better and more informed marketer. And along those lines, we're going to jump into a couple of new concepts today, prospect theory and endowment effect. And maybe maybe as a start of, of what that looks like, Cole, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a good overview of what each of those are, and then we can dive into it. Sure. So... We'll start with prospect theory. Prospect theory is, remember, we, we covered off on loss aversion. And prospect theory parallels a lot of that. It doesn't necessarily explain why we have loss aversion, but it makes more practical sense of how it pervades so many decisions and um, viewpoints in our lives and, and, you know, in this general framing concept. So prospect theory is uh, essentially a framework on why we make the decisions we do and how we evaluate options. And so this includes things like whether we view something as a gain or a loss and how much um, subjective emotion, um, either positive or negative emotion comes with that. Endowment effect is what we'll follow up. It's, it's related, but it is more focused on how we have kind of a a paradigm shift of how we value things that we own versus what we don't own. Um, and it's, it's, this will also relate a little bit to paradox of choice, but we'll get into what these two concepts are, um, how we see them in everyday life, how threads, like really common threads in psychology and behavioral economics pervade these concepts, uh, such as loss aversion. And then as well, um, how marketers kind of use these in everyday life. So starting with prospect theory, what's a, what's a good example or what's a use case that, that you've learned or identified that would be helpful for us to start with? So prospect theory is a lot about why we view gains and losses so differently. And I'll, I'll kind of start with, with just the initial founding of it. So a couple of the kind of godfathers of behavioral economics, if you will, Kahneman and Fersky did a bunch of research on framing and all the effects, and there are a ton. And we'll actually, if we have time, we might get into a couple of the smaller, uh, more straightforward effects um, later on in, the sh- in this podcast. But they came up with this general framework about how we evaluate options and decisions. And there's a graphical interface um, that we've included in the podcast description. And you'll see this this x-axis is objective state. So that's gains versus losses. If you're positive, you're you're gaining. And if you're negative, you're losing. Uh, The y-axis is subjective state. And that's our positive or or negative emotion. It's essentially the amount of psychological arousal 
um, that we feel upon gaining or losing anything. And so remember how we talked about it in behavioral economics, it differs from neoclassical economics in the fact that this neoclassical is, is in essence, the straight out of textbook, supply and demand, very straightforward. But when you try to fit that model to everyday life, there's so many other subtle nuances and things going on that that rarely ever fits. So neoclassical economics would tell us that, you know, for every one unit of gain on the x-axis, I should increase one unit of positive emotion on the y-axis. So for instance, I should receive one unit of positive emotion for every $20 I find. If I find $40, I should receive two, um, you know, units of positive emotion. And of course that doesn't actually work. What, what's actually funny is, and I'm, I'm gonna take just one minute here to kind of nerd out on the neurobiological side of this. So in fMRI studies, which is functional MRI studies. So like if you've seen MRI scans, uh, magnetic resonance imaging, Functional is what it looks like over time. And so that's what they do brain scans with. And so if they're, you know, hitting your knee, if they're, if they're asking questions, things like that, they're just trying to see, uh, according to like blood oxygenation levels, what parts of the brain are being stimulated for any given activity. And what they've done is they've done this sort of prospect theory concept. And they said, okay, here's, you know, uh, here's a game and you're gaining money or points or whatever or you're losing them. And what they notice is that when, when we see gains, we see you know um, in the pleasure center, the, the nucleus accumbens, which is near the center of the brain, um, will actually activate. When we actually have losses, the, the pain center, and which you know, biologically, if you got you know, kicked in the shin, this same anterior cingulate cortex would, would fire up in an fMRI scan. So, and that's near the, the, you know, near the front of the brain, near the uh, emotional limbic system and the cognitive prefrontal cortex. So it's oddly kind of like right in place with how, we, where we feel emotion and where we process, you know, higher, more abstract thought um, capabilities. Now, what they actually find though, the really interesting thing here is that for every, in this, you know, let's say they're playing a game and they gain $100, they'll see X amount of uh, activity in the pleasure center of the brain. But if they lose $100, they'll actually see double the amount of pain. And so, you know, it's, it's not always double. They say generally, like most, most textbooks will suggest that, that losing is twice as painful as gaining is enjoyable. Is, is enjoyable. So, that's not really necessarily technically true because the amounts and different people and it, it, it's, it varies, but that's kind is of a it, general it, rule of thumb that a lot of people are saying it's twice as painful to lose X as it is enjoyable to gain X. Is it kind of like the, and I can't remember exactly what that, this, the numbers were for the study, but it was a study based on income. And it was saying that once you hit a certain amount, anything above that amount, was incremental in value uh, or was not as incremental in value. So if you went, if, if you uh, make 40,000 and you make, you jump up to 80,000, that's obviously going to be a big bump. But if you go from 80,000 to maybe these numbers are not good examples, but if you go from 80,000 to 160,000, yeah, there's a bump, but it's not as big psychologically as 40 to 80. Yeah. And, and so you're exactly right. And that, that magic number, I think most recently 
is it varies from study to study, but generally it falls around 70 to $75,000 of household income. After that, you don't actually experience more life satisfaction or emotional happiness as you're in the, the correlation ceases to exist after 70 to $75,000 of, of um, annual household income. But yeah, that's, that's the, the, the same concept is, and part of this is, you know, the adjusting baselining. If you get a, you know, a 5% raise tomorrow, you'd be pretty happy, but in six months, you're going to forget about that. Part of that is just the baselining concept that we just adapt like a frog in boiling water to whatever we're, situation we're in. But part of that is this... Hold on, do frogs in boiling water adapt? Oh, you've never heard of that uh, biology experiment that, that frogs no. being cold-blooded? Yeah. So being cold-blooded, if you put a frog in regular water and then slowly dial up the temperature, they won't perceive the change. And you could eventually technically kill a frog by boiling it to death but they'll never detect the change because they're cold-blooded. They're, yeah, their, bo their body adjusts to the temperature until it's Boy. doing damage. So until it, it until kills itself. Huh? Yeah. You ever heard that concept? That's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just kind of... Um... Too many episodes of Seinfeld. I, 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 can't, <laughs> I can't be bothered with things that actually would improve my intelligence. <laughs> um, no, it's just this general concept that as slow, you know, tiny incremental changes happen we get used to these things and they become less and less significant to us. And that's what happens with, with this, you know, in, in prospect theory. So, you know, in that fMRI scan, the pain centers of the brain are exploding with twice the neural activity when we incur loss, as opposed to when we, you know, as compared to the pleasure center, uh, when we receive gains of the exact value. And, and the reason that is, is because, you know, to kind of harken back to those neoclassical economic days, it's law of marginal utility. Remember that, that the uh, analogy of the first bite of the sandwich, you know, the first bite is always the best. And after that marginal utility gets lower and lower because you just get used to it. And, you know, it just doesn't have the same effect. Same thing with, you know, uh, drug addictions and gambling and things like that. You know, you just, there's never really enough and you never really have the experience that you, that you started with. And so one of the applications here um, of, of prospect theory is this kind of small effect called reflection effect, um, which is commonly known as a reflection effect. But basically, um, and since you and I have kind of talked about this in the past, I'm not going to ask you this question. But generally speaking, we become risk averse in gains, and we become risk seeking in losses. So what that means is, if I were to ask a question, say, if you if you want me to, I'm going to give you an option. I will give you $20 right now, guaranteed, or you can have a one in five chance of me giving you $100. Most people will be conservative and say, I'll take the guarantee, I don't like one in five odds. And so they will take the $20 guaranteed. Now, if I flip the script and say, okay, now you either are guaranteed to lose $20, or I'm gonna let you have a one in five chance of giving me a hundred dollars, you're going to be out a hundred bucks or you have four and five chance of losing nothing. Now, all of a sudden we become risk seeking and losses and we'll say, Hey, let's roll the dice. Like, I'd rather take the chance of not losing anything, even though I have a one in five chance of losing a hundred dollars. Now, statistically, you know, neo neoclassically, they're supposed to be the exact same option. There's a wash between the two, but 
80% of the time during, during studies, most people will go with, and I'm making up it, it's, it's you know, usually 70 to 90 or something like that. And all sorts of studies like this indicate that people will be risk averse in the gain and accept the $20 guarantee, but they will take the chance on losing more than that if they have to. And honestly, this explains too things about like, you know, why gamblers act the way they do. Why, if you're going to lose something, like go all in and maybe there's a chance that you either come out even or even have a gain. So, but the, this reflection effect is actually part of what's called the fourfold pattern. And that is the certainty effect and the possibility effect. So what that means is at, at those ends of the curves. So like once we've, you know, passed the point of, you know, marginal utility on a gain or even, you know, disutility on a loss, that is actually a word. Um, once we've reached those kind of curves where it sort of like flattens out like that, that the prospect of losing a potential gain now actually creates the feeling of loss aversion. So we become, you know, that loss averse or what's risk averse is we actually seek to take risks when we're near certain losses, but we'll do anything to avoid risks when there's even the slightest chance of a loss on when we're on the gain side of the curve. So essentially, if you're facing a gain or a loss, whether you think it's high or low probability, that's a huge impactor on your behavior. So we see this every day with, with concepts like lotteries. People know there's a you know one in 13 million bajillion whatever odds of striking the lotto this week, but they'll still sink five, 10, 20 bucks a week into that. And they don't mind doing that because they're willing to roll the dice on that. It's, but the same thing, the opposite is true with like insurance. Like I may be the best driver in the world. I may know my traffic patterns just fine. I, I may be very, very safe. But if even the slightest odds of, you know, your, your family or your car, your property, yourself is at danger, you want to make sure you're covered. And so people are willing to spend way more than they need to on insurance. This same sort of concept comes into lawsuits where, you know, a plaintiff and a, a defendant, like a, a plaintiff may have a great case for, you know, having a seven figure lawsuit in their, you know, in front of them. But if they go to court, there's still a slight chance that they might lose and gain nothing. In which case, even though they had seven figures of opportunity, they're willing to take a $500,000 settlement just to make sure that they don't run that risk. So they become risk averse in that gain. But, you know, the insurance company, they're willing to go to court because they're more, um, you know, depending on the numbers, of course, that's why they dial, dial these back to such bad settlements sometime, because they're willing to roll the dice saying, hey, if I'm going to lose, I might as well go court and just take the chance that I might get off the hook here. And I think the, uh, it's really interesting that if you have some, so if you have something to gain, you become um, much more risky. But if you have something to lose, you become much, much more risk averse, which is interesting, especially as we think about the impact it has on marketers. And the example I can think of is around messaging and especially around email marketing. So I think we've both worked with customers who may or may not have the best sending practices or the best acquisition practices of getting their email addresses. They've bought lists or they're emailing folks that have previously unsubscribed or just haven't engaged in a long time. And to a list of 100,000 people, they might have a 3% conversion rate. 
And so you say to them, well, if you cut your list in half to actually people who want to receive your messaging, you know, your conversion could go up to six or 7%, which is essentially the same, right? But they're worried about losing what they have versus increasing um, through some kind of a loss. Yeah, and it's it, it's funny you bring that up. So like, you know, we've heard the nothing to lose theory and you know, in, in the sports world, that makes you a huge threat going in, you know, in the NFL playoffs, just getting in there and a team that is underseeded or, you know, is the low seed that has nothing to do, has no expectations, they become very dangerous. You know, you're, you're just betting everything you got and your, your behavior is very different. Now, like this, this same sort of concept, you're right. In, in terms of how we message thing, it's, you know, to marketers and even in consumers. So like a, a uh, an example of this and how we frame this is gain versus loss, right? So if I told you that, you know, I, I, I've got yogurt that's made up of 3% fat, you would probably think it's disgusting. But if it had a big, you know, sunburst on next to the logo saying 97% fat free, you'd probably love it. It's the exact same thing, but it's just framed as a gain versus a loss. Um, same thing for, for, you know, uh, how we report on, you know, diseases while we're, you know, thinking of, of topical situations, something with a 99.9% survival rate sounds pretty easy. But if you have a one in a thousand chance of dying, which is statistically the exact same thing, that sounds a lot worse. And your example, Bobby, of somebody that has, you know, a hundred thousand contacts and 3% conversion rate. Well, those 3% conversions are probably coming off of their best subscribers, those that are active and you know, will remain active, calling the herd and getting rid of, you know, and you and I talk about this easily as marketers because it's, it's not our contact list and it's not our database, but that, that loss aversion, that fear of losing something is a big deal. And actually that parlays perfectly into what's endowment effect. Um, and I'll just jump, jump into endowment effect is it's this, it's this little phenomenon that takes place that causes individuals to value an owned object higher, often, oftentimes irrationally than what its market value is. So it's an emotionally driven bias. Um, one of the, I'll, I'll just give you an example of this. One of my favorite examples is there was a psychologist and a behavioral economist, economist that went to uh, Duke University for a study. And they noticed that all these students, and this, I guess this is a common practice at, at Duke for basketball tickets, which are super low in supply for student tickets, but super high in demand, obviously, given, you know, uh, Coach K and the Duke history of, of success there. So basically, like a week before a game, fans pitching tents and sleeping in the grass in front of the stadium. And then at random intervals, a university official sounds off an air horn. And that requires all of those fans, all those students to check in with the basketball authority um, within five minutes, anybody who doesn't make that five minute uh, check-in is cut from the waiting list for the lottery for tickets. So what these, what these two did is they went around posing as ticket scalpers. They got the list of all the students and all the fans that had signed up. And afterwards, they called them all up individually and said, um, did you win? Yes or no. And then if you if you didn't win, what would you be willing to pay to buy a ticket? And then if you did win, what would you be willing to sell your ticket for? And so the answers of those that, keep in mind that both 
samples of population here had the same amount of, of skin in the game. They had the same amount of level of, of effort, of presumably the same amount of, of interest. And those that did get tickets were randomly selected from those kids that are all camping out and waiting for this game. So of the kids that didn't win, they were willing to pay on average $170 for a ticket to the game. Um, I'll ask you, Bobby, what do you think the people who owned tickets, who did win the tickets, were willing to sell them for? Probably less than what the market rate would be. Opposite of that. One would think that like there's probably, you know, a general marketplace sets its own prices that, you know, or at least, you know, in our, in our free market society here. Um, that it would be something near $170. Those that did win tickets said on average, they were willing to part for those tickets for $2,400. Holy smokes. In ent entirely. And so there's been a lot of studies. There's the famous Cornell mug study, which is coffee mugs, which you know came out to be like, if you owned it, you valued it twice of what people who didn't own it valued it as. And what this is, is, is just, it's this general concept that if, if I own this ticket, it's now something that I have to give up. And it's, again, that loss aversion thread being woven through to another concept here, an endowment effect saying, if I lose this ticket, it better be really worth my while because I, I'm so loss averse. I don't want to lose anything. And to your point, to, to the marketers, I don't want to lose half my database, even though you know culling the herd is better for my overhead expenditure, better for my conversion rates. I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose out on that because that's painful for me. Remember that that anterior cingulate cortex is going to fire up at twice of what the gain would be. Or in this case, you know, I think it's 11 times or something like that, the, the difference, um, you know, in the, in the cost of a ticket. And so the reason this happens is because it's, it's partly related to, you know, the self bias and positivity bias, which is more psychological uh, in its roots, but it's kind of just how we generally have ego and think that things we have or do are better. Um, and we look more positively on ourselves and what we've done. Um, but the big reason for this is loss aversion. And this notion of it's mine becomes a powerful persuasive effect on how we spend more time, money, effort, value on what we now own than when we didn't own it. So think about like you're, you know, a friend of yours who has just a clunker car, um, spends more time and money investing in this thing, trying to fix it up, trying to, you know, always getting new parts because this thing's just falling apart, it, you know, insuring it. At the end of the day, in any given year, they're probably putting more money into it than what's actually worth. Then one day when they actually go to part with it, they wonder why no one wants to buy, you know, this rusty Ford Pinto for 20 grand. It's because they, they have just such a misperception of what the true market value is for this. So the way marketers and consumers kind of interact with this on a regular basis are like a lot of marketing tactics are like test drives or like airlines use this for free first class upgrades. Now that you've been first class, it's a loss to go back to your regular seats. So the next flight, all of a sudden you, you had all this space, leg room, free drinks, everything. And now you're back shoulder to shoulder, you know, like the old days when before this you were fine, but then you got first class, you just had a taste of it. 
And now you can't give that back up or like freemium versions of a product um, giveaways that require like a purchase or some sort of activation effort because it's, you've, you've been given something or a part of a product or access to a product. You now don't want to give that up. Think about like free trials um, or like free trials for apps or premium channels or something like that. You get a week of like HBO, Showtime, Disney Plus, whatever it is. And then that week expires and now it's time to give it up. That becomes painful. That's because it's a loss and you're, we're averse to that loss. And that becomes really difficult for us to give up. And that's why it's such a, you know, a, a clever move for marketers when they do these, these types of things, because consumers get used to this. We adjust that baseline to where we are now the owners of this product. And now when that's pulled away, our valuation of that product is higher than it was before we owned it. Does that make sense? For sure. And I think, well, especially when I think about marketers or folks that we work with, I feel like it goes into two buckets where you'll have a group of people who are, are very proud of, for example, the journeys that they've designed or um, different concept, marketing concepts that they've put together and are not really open to feedback on how it could be better or what tools they should be using to, to increase the value of what they're doing. I see, think you see this a lot with testing, right? Um, there are some organizations we work with that are, are hev hev heavily involved in testing. They're always trying to figure out how can I improve my customer journey, for example, to get another 0.1% conversion or 0.1% engagement. But then you also have another group that is, is very, um, I don't even want to say anti-testing or anti-innovation, but it's much harder to get those folks to move to get them off of what they've been doing that's been tried and true for a couple of years as an example, which I think is exactly the, the um, example or correlation to the endowment effect. Yeah, you and I have come up against this a, a ton of times when somebody has like, you know, homegrown MarTech that they use. Um, and even though it-, it Oh, like, for sure. And it yeah, means that's a nothing great point. about how effective the MarTech is, but the fact that, you know, this one IT owner put blood, sweat and tears into this thing and it's very important to them. They're there, you know, because it's their baby, it's the, it makes them very important to the organization, even though everything now has to go through them and they become a bottleneck. If they weren't emotionally invested in that, they would likely be able to look at that and be like, hey, I don't want to be the bottleneck. Let's, we, you know, something needs to change here. But it's difficult to have a conversation because there's emotion tied into that. And that person has a much higher valuation of you know that product or that homegrown piece of martech equipment whatever it is than all their peers do and so other people might be looking at it like hey we need to do something different um, in terms of our data warehouse or whatever this practice is because this is slowing things down and i, I think that's a great example like the it front you, you know we've come across that a number of companies where especially larger technology or product driven companies that they're focused on building it themselves, or um, if they've got something built already, they want to continue to use that rather than use, you know, best of breed of a particular platform, which, you know, there's always, there's always more to the story than that, but you can definitely feel, especially if someone's been involved with building something, their um, propensity to, to hold on to it, to kind of poke holes in whatever you have or whatever might be publicly available to what they've done. Obviously, that makes a lot of sense sometimes, right? Because they've built it specifically for their use cases and how they want to utilize that particular piece of technology. But 
is the is the long-term gain or is that short-term gain that you have better than the long-term gain that you might have and i think that goes back to that that loss aversion right like i don't want to i don't want to lose this one particular feature that i've built specifically for our business in the possible return of having 10 other features that we don't have that might increase conversion or increase engagement yeah and and i honestly uh, growth is painful change is is difficult to manage and this especially emotionally driven bias keeps us and we've had the same whether it's on the it front or to your point like the marketer that has set up these dozens of journeys that just kind of get more and more convoluted over time and things get added and instead of starting from scratch or like hey let's let's test this or this preconceived notion that we already had let's let's just see it, see if this is even working right some some marketers are, are you know and you and I are, are, are not outside of that that realm it's like hey we think this works are we really really testing this all the time to make sure this is still valid or are we just going off this assumption because we've sunk so much into this that I won't get into sunk content cost because that's a whole nother concept, but we've put so much into this that I don't, I don't, I don't want to lose it now that that endowment effect drives me to say like, let's just keep the, the solution that we have, whether it's that, you know, it stack, whether it's, you know, a, an, an old um, data warehouse that just doesn't run properly, whether it's journeys for a marketer that could be optimized, but we just, there's just there's such a sentimental value sunk into something like that. That blood, sweat, and tears concept is just, it's going to be hard to rip that Band-Aid off and step into something that we don't know as much about or aren't as important to or don't feel as connected to. I think you see this too with organizations or just with people um, in their particular positions. Like you always kind of hear the, the thought of, you know, the, the people or the leaders that you need to get from one employee to 100 employees is going to be much different than the leaders or the people that you need to get from 100 employees to 500 employees, for example. And I think that just as, as people too, like whether it's a job, whether it's a journey or whatever it might be, you're always hesitant to give up what you have for the potential bonus that might come with letting go of it. Yeah, you, you rarely see executive level management transition from the startup phase to, you know, the, the full-grown post-buyout, like enterprise phase, where, where it's like, or, or at least not see them at some point, like start to waver. We're, you know, to your point, like that, just think about that prospect theory, that, that curve on gains, like that growth is now no longer from like zero to 100 people or 200 or 500 or whatever. We're, we're looking at like tens of thousands of employees. And you're right, the types of leaders are very different than they are from one company, you know, it's in startup phase versus they are in an enterprise phase. Um, the same types of, you know, marketing leaders are going to be very different in those types of environments. And you rarely see somebody at that executive level or any level just say, you know what, I think I was the right guy for like zero to 500 people. But yeah, after this, it's just, it's a little, it's a little bigger and it's just not my, my cup of tea. And I'm willing to step away from something that I have so much blood, sweat and tears in and just say like, I don't think I'm the, the best, you know, one for the job or that this isn't the right equipment for the job anymore. Or, These aren't the right journeys for the marketing team anymore. Like you just don't see that because it's so emotionally connected to us. Well, before we jump into completely unrelated, let's take a quick break. Ultraviolet is back. 
Love's annual conference, Ultraviolet, uh, is now open for registration. It'll be returning virtually April 12th and 13th. And based on the fact that both Cole and I did sessions last year, which, I mean, I think, you know, it was, it was pretty uh, clear that ours were, were one and two, you know, just kept going back and forth, which one Obviously, you want to listen to right? the most. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's got dozens of sessions. Um, it, it really showcases the best thought leadership from Lev, our customers, as well as our partners, including Salesforce with a combination of marketing strategy and technical skills. And so uh, there's dozens of sessions, um, things diving into script, diving into um, data modeling within marketing cloud, but also journey strategy, how some of our customers and Salesforce customers are, are building out their MarTech approach. Um, so you won't want to miss it. You can register and learn more at ultravioletconference.com. And we'll also put a link in the podcast show notes. So before we jump into completely unrelated, anything that you wanted to add on to um, those two concepts um, that kind of button those things up between the endowment effect and prospect theory? Uh, you know, there's a couple of, so we talked about like, uh, you know, the reflection effect and how marketers use these types of tactics. Uh, there's a couple of small effects I do want to also just kind of mention um, that are just interesting and they're related, but like one is decoy effect. Um, and that's where there's, you know, realtors use this a lot. And so it's something like, I have a house that I think you're, is, is right for you. I'm going to show you that house. I'm also going to show you a house that is nothing like what you wanted. Uh, it has an entire wall made of nothing but glass panes. Um, it's on stilts. It's, it's just something very different than what you want. And that's going to drive you more securely into the, the house that you do want. Or so like typically what's, they have what, what is called a, a target, a competitor, you know, and just decoy elements. So there could be more than, you know, two options, but decoy effect is used a lot of the times. And so they'll use this in, in car lots where, um, you know, the car, usually that car that they put up on, on uh, the ramp and, you know, take forever to get up there. They're not planning on selling that car. In fact, there's no intention whatsoever that they're going to get rid of that car. It took them so long to get it up there, but they're going to put a price tag on it. So when you talk to them and you see the alternative, that has less features, uh, a different color, and um, is a higher price than what you're getting, all of a sudden, yours looks a lot better. Your option looks a lot better. There's also very similarly related to that is the Goldilocks effect. And that's this, um, the middle is just right. And I'm, I'm trying to think of, I wanna say it was uh, Panasonic. And so two of these behavioral economists that we actually talked about in the, in the podcast today went to uh, Panasonic and they, this is where I love, one of the reasons I love behavioral economics because it bridges that academia world of neoclassical economics with practical world. And so what they did was they actually went to Panasonic and they said, hey, your competitor, uh, Emerson at the time, this is like in, I think 92 or something like that. Um, your competitor has a camera that uh, costs a hundred and, um, ten dollars or something like that, and Panasonic's rival had a hundred and eighty dollar um, uh, price tag. And so what they did was they said, okay, let's try something here. According to the Goldilocks effect, if we added another option, it would make the middle option more attractive. Right now, you're just the high end option. In the vast majority of the time, people will go for the lower cost option. 
um, even if the, the higher end option has better uh, features and functionality and things like that. So what they did was they said, how about you charge $200 for this new product? And I think these were ovens or, or maybe convection ovens or something like that. Um, I, so they said, let's, let's put on kind of this luxury high end and see what happens. Well, their market share went from 43% to 73% after adding that third options. Because what happens is people now anchor to the middle with this Goldilocks effect, because the middle is just right. Now we have a luxury end where I can see the, the best of the best. We have something comfortably in the middle. And now instead of the safe option, we have the cheap option. So they spent, they, they just sent that $110 Emerson product. They made that the cheap option by comparison, by adding on a luxury option. So their goal was really not to sell the luxury item at all. Very few people actually converted on that, but their market share with the middle price option skyrocketed. And so actually, I think from that, their um, uh, market share overall went to like 60%. So they became majority owner of the, uh, of the marketplace. So just something like- well, Yeah, really I, don't, I don't want to pay the top dollar, but I don't want to pay, you know, I can pay more than the bottom dollar. So I just, you know, the middle dollar. Exactly. And so that's the Goldilocks effect is the, the middle is just right. And so I, I, I would kind of challenge us if we had a takeaway here just for uh, as a challenge for marketers, just kind of recall- uh, our discussion about paradox of choice. When there are too many options, it lowers the odds of conversion, right? More is not always better. Um, but think about how fewer intentionally varied options can actually provide more clarity and increased likelihood of conversion. And so this comes across like product recommendations and certain business rules that we have providing limits and intentional variations of products that we recommend or product lines like you know manufacturing, like what makes more for Coca-Cola, you know, Coke, Diet Coke and Sprite, or the millions of iterations of Sprite Remix Cherry 2.0, things like that. Like more is not always better, but when you're really intentional and strategic about what these options are and how they're presented, it can really benefit a marketer to work smarter and not harder. Awesome. Well, thanks for going through all of that. Jumping into completely unrelated, New Year's resolutions, what's yours? So I don't actually do New Year's resolutions. Me um, either. Yeah, no kidding. Um, no. I don't think we've ever talked about this. I, I didn't know you that I, I, I usually uh, am the different one, but my thing is like, I always just kind of like set little goals or things I want to get done. And I don't have anything against New Year's resolutions. I think they help a lot of people. The fact of the matter is a lot of them change and Usually if it's a resolution, it's like a single one-off goal um, rather than like a habit change or a behavioral modification to your everyday life. Um, you know, if I, I always say this, like if it's summer and I look down and I see a beer gut, you know, starting to spill over my trunks, like I'm not going to be like, you know what? I should do something about that next year. <laughs> like, I, I'm going to say like, oh, you know, something, something's out of hand right now or something needs to change. I got to I got to do something about this now. And so like, whatever it is, like, it's, you know, I, I, I tend to just set lots of little like micro goals for myself. And so that keeps, by the time January rolls around, like if, if I don't already have most things in place, you know, it's something that I should have been tackling long ago for me. So that's, you know, my personal interpretation of why I don't really do new year's resolutions. 
I think I used I used to, and then I just you know you just end up failing at all of them. So it's like, well, what's the point? Well, you've seen the stats where only more than you know more than like ninety six percent of New Year's resolutions fail within the first month or something like that. Like, yeah, it varies from study to study, but like, yeah, if you constantly have a New Year's resolution of not having any resolutions, then you always succeed. Yeah, there you go. If you don't set goals, you never fail, Bobby. Hey, that's boy. I think that's like bulletin board material. I might that's have deep. to paint that on our wall that's, at home. <laughs> that's deep, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks as always to listening to In the Clouds. If you want to reach out to us or have a suggestion for a topic, reach out to us at in the clouds at lovedigital.com. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>